More tales of America as the world's policeman. And as Gilbert and Sullivan has told us, a policeman's law is not an happy one. Pressure has been on the Yemeni government, says CNN, to fight a growing al-Qaeda element, al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, which grabbed the attention of the West with the Christmas Day attempted bombing of a Northwest Airlines transatlantic flight as it landed in Detroit. There's got to be some reason for landing in Detroit. The suspect, Farouk Abdul Mutalab, who has pleaded not guilty to six federal terrorism charges, was reportedly trained and armed in Yemen. There is also increasing scrutiny of America's growing involvement. We're there and we're more than advisors. We handpicked the country's top fighters, said General Yawa Mohammed Abdullah As-Saleh. By the time they say his name, the guys are inside the compound. President Salah's nephew, who runs the elite counterterrorism unit, said that this is true. America is taking a further and deeper commitment to Yemeni security. But al-Qaeda is also stepping up its training in Yemen. (laughs) You get one, you get the other. Some counterterrorism experts warn that an influx of foreign fighters from the insurgencies in Afghanistan and Iraq is making the terrorist presence in Yemen much more resilient. Why am I not surprised? We're we're training terrorists. We may not be running the camps, but we're creating the atmosphere that makes it possible for them to be, you know, really excited about the idea of running off to uh, behind God's back and learning how to make improvised explosive devices. What a life. You could become a plumber. No, I'm going to become an exploder. Al-Qaeda is using U.S. and British involvement in Yemen as propaganda to win over the support of locals and discredit the Yemeni government. There is also growing speculation of a more direct role in the fighting by the American military, but U.S. officials maintain they only provide intelligence and training to the Yemenis. In July, Amnesty International released photographs of U.S. cluster bombs uh, dropped on a rural Yemeni village in an anti-Al-Qaeda operation. Scores of women and children were reported to have been killed. This attack took place on December 17th, about a week before the Detroit attempted bombing. So this may have encouraged that man to come and try and bomb us in Detroit, just as all the droning in Pakistan. Uh, so says the guy that tried to bomb us in Times Square. Cluster bombs, mines, they have to be outlawed now this is terror this is state terror most yemeni officials believe al-qaeda in the arabian peninsula numbers only a few hundred remember they told us in afghanistan there's only a hundred al-qaeda there and we're spending a billion ahead how much are we going to be spending on these guys in yemen there's only a few hundred highly trained fighters living in rural areas where local tribes may provide shelter yeah Yemeni society is not homogenous. There are lots of people who see the Yemeni-U.S. security cooperation as a horrible choice, said Mohammed al-Assadi, a former editor of the Yemen Observer. Others believe this kind of cooperation is acceptable as long as it is based on a win-win deal, which they feel is not the case. Whether the U.S. or U.K. troops are building the capacity of the Yemeni forces or directly are launching the air attacks, this kind of military cooperation is publicly unwelcome. Don't we get it? We're not wanted. We're not doing any good. We're not building any nation. We're just increasing our deficit, both our financial deficit and our moral deficit. For the Yemeni government, any evidence of foreign involvement in its campaign against al-Qaeda risks a backlash, a blowback. This is one of the most conservative of Arab countries where foreigners are often viewed with suspicion. Yeah, I think that's putting it lightly. The Western trainers pay a crucial role in helping confront al-Qaeda here, but in winning the war, the government risks losing, get ready, 
the hearts and minds of its people. Oh my, when are we ever going to learn? It would look as if the future has an influence on what happens today or yesterday. Well, the gray lady tells us that the housing bust uh, that began among the working class in remote subdivisions and quickly progressed to the suburban middle class is striking the upper class in privilege enclaves like uh, Silicon Valley and the expensive parts of uh, outside of Chicago all over the country. The rich are closing their doors. Whether it is their residence, a second home, or a house bought as an investment, the rich have stopped paying the mortgage at a rate that greatly exceeds the rest of the population. Oh, so the rich are walking on their mortgages to a greater percent than the middle class and those horrible people in the lower middle class who should never have been allowed to buy in the first place. More than one in seven homeowners with loans in excess of a million dollars are seriously delinquent. One in seven? That's 14%, Jucko. By contrast, homeowners with less lavish housing are much more likely to keep writing checks to their lender. About one in 12 mortgages below the million dollar mark is delinquent. One in seven for the fatty cats, one in 12 for the more humble members of the Vox Populi. Many of the well-to-do are purposely dumping their financially drained properties just as they would any sour investment. My! The sheriff in Cook County, Illinois, is increasingly in demand with foreclosed owners in the upscale suburbs to the north and west of Chicago, like Wilmette, LaGrange, and Glencoe. The occupants are always gone by the time a deputy gets there, a spokesman said, but just barely. Uh, the sheriff's at the front door, and they're going out the back door. Uh, uh, it is the same scenario in Los Altos. This is a real ritzy Silicon Valley uh, upscale neighborhood where the median home price of $1.5 million makes it one of the most exclusive towns in the country. Several houses uh, scheduled for auction were still occupied this week. The people who answered the door were reluctant to explain their circumstances in any detail. You couldn't understand them anyway because the woman was just sobbing and the man was incoherently drunk. At one point uh, where the lender was uh, owed $1.3 million, there was a couch out front wrapped in plastic. A woman said she and her husband had lost their jobs and were moving in with their relatives. And a vacant house with a pool where the lender was seeking $1.27 million, a raft and a water gun lay abandoned on the entryway floor. Ah, oh, my, oh, my, the new American saga, the new American tragedy. Well, mean-spirited pundits, right, have been blaming the middle class and the lower middle class for blowing up the real estate bubble by buying homes they couldn't afford. Now, enter the rich as part of the problem, and they're copping out at a faster rate than their cousins from across the tracks. I guess you don't have to be needy to be greedy. In distant Dungdong province, flowering entrepreneur Chin Fat was thrown into the deepest solitary confinement well for harboring bicameral thoughts. He figured he bought the farm. So he did, because he remembered to dial all the numbers you need to know. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, plus 90. C.Fat, 30,000 short, Duck Dong Future Farm Futures, and that's confirmed. And that was the call that bought the farm, that floated the loan, that skinned the cat, that fed the village, that built the dam, that drained the well, that lifted the life of Chin Fat. Hello, Charles Fat, Worldwide Dong Dong, Duckling, and Densong. 
global success is in your finger when you dial one two three four seven eight five six plus ninety. Wow, I can't think of any other numbers. Buy the numbers. Only ten cents a mile from anywhere, no matter what they're calling you. I'm on the phone with Daniel Pinchbeck, author, lecturer, the has a leading role in a very interesting film, 2012, time for change, and he publishes a very interesting website called realitysandwich.com. I went up there and had a great time, and I recommend you do the same. Glad to have you on Radio Free Oz. How are you doing? Oh, thanks. I'm glad to be here. Well, here's, you know, when I was reading through your material, which is voluminous, you know, I, there's no way in the world I could, like, even go through the index of what you, you know, what you've spoken about and researched. But the concept of the tipping point, the big change, uh, can would you give me a little background and give our people a little background of what the tipping point means and, and how you came to this understanding? You know, just give us some background on this, okay? Cool. I mean, you know, that, that, that particular name, maybe I use it once or twice. I mean, that's just one way of looking at it. But, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, my argument, uh, I mean, it's, a, it's kind of a lot to describe, but uh, I, my first book, Breaking Up in the Head, was about shamanism and particularly psychedelic substances mm-hmm. used by tribal people around the world. And uh, I, I grew up as a scientific materialist. I went through a big existential crisis. Uh, I, I, I went to West Africa through tribal initiation. Uh, you know, I, I was working as a journalist, so I wrote about various uh, shamanic uh, explorations. I went down in the Amazon and Ecuador, working with ayahuasca, a, wow. a psychedelic drink and a sacrament from the rainforest and, and uh, visited uh, the Mazatec Indians in Mexico and, you know, looked at the suppression of LSD and peyote and mushrooms in the West and all that stuff. And uh, through a number of experiences through, through, through you know, being sort of initiated in shamanism, I, I had, I uh, sort of recovered this dimension of, of psychic reality that um, modern society kind of uh, negates and suppresses. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, having having recovered that for myself, you know, I began to realize that that was you know something that was really available for everyone, and something that our that that you know we we had we had you know kind of just yeah turned away from. Uh, I also began to learn that a lot of indigenous cultures have prophecies about the time that we're in. Uh, you know, the Hopi, who are one of the first people on this continent, who now live in Arizona, believe we're in this uh, time between the worlds, between the fourth world and the fifth world. Similarly, a lot of, uh, you know, indigenous uh, cultures, you know, have a share, a similar understanding, and the classical Mayan civilization had developed uh, the most sophisticated form of this knowledge in their calendar system, pointing towards our year 2012 as kind of the hinge point of a shift in the human consciousness and society. So, and then as we approach that point in time, we can see that, um, you know, the ecological cataclysms are, are getting more and more um, pronounced to, to the point where we really are threatening, uh, you know, the, the, the possibility of a, of a termination for our species. Uh, uh, and, um, you know, our technology is becoming more powerful. And also through the, the global interconnectedness of the Internet, we're, we're kind of able to mesh back together all these esoteric uh, knowledge systems and whether it's Kabbalah or Sufism or shamanism or Tibetan tantric Buddhism or whatever. So we're kind of, um, on the one hand, we're, we're threatened by you know, our unconscious projections, and on, on the other hand, we're, we're uh, accessing a uh, you know, more uh, coherent uh, 
realization of like the nature of consciousness, the nature of our being. And I think that's, that's kind of the tipping point. It, it's this convergence, you know, of, uh, you know, science and mysticism, uh, technology and, uh, you know, the technicians of the sacred. And, um, you know, I think part of the threshold we cross is, is, uh, to, uh, you know, kind of re-embrace these archaic uh, aspects of the human experience uh, in the here and now.